0: Lord Jesus, thank you for worshiping. Thank you, Lord, for being here in the midst of our worship service to you. We are in you, you are in us. What a beautiful truth. That we are never alone and we can't be. And if we perceive that you are far away, it's only the suffering that is speaking to us and lying to us. It is never the reality. Help us, Lord, learn to suffer and rejoice as the first Christians did, and as many Christians gathered in other places, in much tougher places are even this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. 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 Several years ago, I was at a local Christian university giving them a cheerful little talk. It wasn't a sermon. It was a one-hour lecture designed to encourage them and prepare them for what would come immediately into their lives after graduation. The professor who invited me there told me before the talk that I should not be surprised if any number of students walked out on me in tears. And I was surprised by that because I'd given the talk before and it was the same cheerful talk that I'd given previous times and nobody had walked out then, and she told me that it would have nothing to do with me and that I shouldn't be concerned or particularly offended if anybody walked out because she figured that uh, roughly a third of the students in that class and in every class she taught were at a breaking point where they might lose control of their emotions in any circumstance, and I asked, well, has there been a shooting on campus? Did Did a beloved student or professor die? What's happened? She said they're very upset about things that are happening in the country. I asked specifically what story, what trauma, because our nation, like every year, was being convulsed by several things at once. I asked if there was anything in particular that was upsetting them, and she mentioned a terrible story in the news some 1,500 miles away. Sometime after that, I sat with someone on the opposite end of life in an entirely different season, someone who was almost a hundred years old, and as I held her hand and we talked about death and dying, she seemed terribly surprised that the end of her life was close and that her friends were dying. And it was disorienting because she was almost a hundred and she seems surprised by suffering. So whether it's college students, so fragile, so anxious, so upset, that they might walk out on an entirely different person talking about entirely different things because of something that happened half a nation away. Or a very, very old person, nearly a century year old, who presumably has had their entire life, and particularly the last decade or so, to think about the fragility of her own life. We're all surprised by suffering. You've heard a little bit of that in the music this morning. Did you know all those songs? I didn't know the last one. And an earlier song, which mournfully says that God loves us, has always made me wonder and question why it's put together the way it is. Because it's talking about a great truth in a very mournful tone. I don't know if you've noticed. That teeth, uh, that that song in particular, I know from the notes I get, puts some people's teeth on edge. Because it seems to have a strange melody accompanying with soaring, beautiful lyrics. God really does love us. Why are you so sad in the way you're singing? Well, this morning, someone wiser and more experienced than I told me the story. It was never intended for public worship. It leaked out into public after the songwriter wrote it after the death of a friend. And it's a song of lament, of grief, and loss, and the songwriter reminding himself how much God loves us in spite of death. And these strange lyrics in the song I just heard about a lion being in your lungs, that's a strange image. But then I remember in Psalm 103, David sang, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. And he walks through a series of things where David is reminding himself of the things that are true about God. That song from David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is 3,000 years old, and certainly better than anything we've sung this morning or ever will because it's the very Word of God. But in the same vein, of Christians coping with loss, with sorrow, with shock, with suffering. We have to learn to suffer well. For about 50 years or so, the American project in Christianity and the way that it is primarily presented in publishing, in churches, in worship, in what we could call the evangelical industrial complex, This machinery that feeds ministry and supports ministry, and I'm not being critical, I'm just giving you an observation, has primarily told Christians that if they have Jesus, they won't suffer. That Jesus can lead them on to a life of blessing and avoid most of the troubles and certainly the worst of the pains. And it's just not true. That's why I chose 1 Peter for our first series in 2022 because I know as a congregation we have been through a great deal and some of you have suffered terribly. And I need to tell you as your pastor, as your fellow Christian, because it's far more important that I am your fellow Christian than your pastor. You've taught me a great deal by your suffering. Some of you have lost so much, hurt so deeply lost people lost jobs lost money had relationships broken had all kinds of things shaken in your world and you've borne up so well under it with the grace and the faithfulness of Jesus somehow God by his spirit just taught you by his word to suffer as the first Christians did and that's what first peter chapter 1 is about if you'll open your bible with me to first peter chapter 1 I'll begin where we were last week. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That was last week. Peter talks to these scattered Christians and tells them paradoxically in the same phrase that they are both chosen by God and scattered in their following. They are homeless. They are metaphorically scattered pilgrims. Placed there because the world is no longer their home. Now the world hates them. And yet in all of that they are chosen by God. And Peter begins his letter by blessing God. And reminding them of why they have so many reasons to praise God. They have a new living hope named Jesus. They have been saved not only for life but to a rich life. Because they have an inheritance that will come from God himself someday. That cannot be destroyed, cannot be lost, and cannot be corrupted. And while they're on their painful pilgrimage, on their way to their true home in heaven, guard him, God Himself is guarding and protecting them until He gets them safely home. That was last week. That's the praise. That's the joy. That's the happiness that precedes what He really wants to talk to them about, which is the trouble that they're in. The suffering they're enduring. Verse 6. In this, in other words, in your new life in Christ, in your eternal inheritance, in the protection of God, in all of these blessings, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been, what's it say? <laughs> Grieved by various trials. It's just a few sentences this morning. This whole first half of Peter, first chapter of 1 Peter, is one sentence in Greek. So I probably could preach it better if I gave it to you in bigger gulps. But my number one Bible reading tip the last several years has been to slow down, so I'm slowing down too and trying to digest it myself. Peter begins with blessing and praise to God. You have a new and living hope. You've been saved by Jesus. You have Jesus. God is so good that He's given you not only His Son, He has His riches. His inheritance is waiting for you. And not only that, God Himself will guard and protect you until He gets you home to enjoy Him and everything He's prepared for you. And this, He says, verse 6, in this you rejoice. But for a little while, He says, if necessary, You've been grieved by various trials. Now it's getting real. The whole thing's real. The whole thing's true. But verse 6 resonates with people who are suffering and hurting. I want to give you Peter's perspective on suffering. I want to give you three truths that I find in these few verses. Truths that you need to remember when your trust in God is being tested. Tested. Because any time you suffer and any time you're tempted or any time you suffer because you're tempted when all of those things come together whether it's external pressure and difficulty that comes from outside your life and crashes into you or it's internal pressure when your own heart wants to walk away from God is tired of faithfulness is tired of obedience is tired of patience because boy the fruit of the Spirit is a tough thing. The very first thing is, what's the first fruit of the Spirit? Love. Love. That's not easy. Love your enemies? Are you kidding me? I had a guy actually say that to me. I quoted Jesus to him and he said, are you kidding? Have you met these people? Well, yeah, that's why it takes the life of Jesus. Jesus. Whether it's external trial or internal trial. In other words, outside pressure that is making you suffer or the internal pressure of temptation that is enticing you to give up on God at least for today. And have it your own way. And do what's obvious and easy and do what you know will feel good. Enough of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. I mean, that doesn't sound like much fun at all. Just indulge yourself. Do what you want. Everybody else is. Why, as one of my kids said growing up, why am I the one that has to be good all the time? <laughs> kids are honest enough to say it. Adults just think it and keep it to themselves because the question is too embarrassing to say out loud. Peter says you're going to find yourself and you already do find yourself in a situation where you are grieved by various trials. And in that phrase, Peter is quickly and eloquently saying in just a few words, life is filled with trouble. All kinds of things. They can be shattering and heartbreaking and mark you for life. Or they can just be the the sand-in-the-gears annoyances that make life unpleasant. Like driving. And the pedestrians in this city. I've never seen anything like Huntington Beach. We are so privileged, we are so blessed to live here. Nobody looks to cross the street. It's astounding. The miracle is not that anybody's hurt, but that people aren't laying dead in the street all over town. That's one of the little tiny bits of sand that gets in my gears. (laughs) Peter says and encompasses everything by saying in verse 6, you have been grieved by various trials. And he's not talking about trivial things, but he's talking about things great and small. The great losses and the daily frustrations... The daily difficulties, the daily annoyances of being a Christian. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And here comes the needed perspective. Look, so that Peter's now going to tell you why you've been grieved by various trials. They're not constant and permanent. They're only occasional, but Peter says they're necessary. At least at certain times in life, grief will enter your life. And again, the broader subculture that we've created in in evangelicalism is if anything is wrong in your life, you're doing something wrong. And you need to read this, or go to that, or talk to Him, or pray this way, or have this formulaic prayer We've come up with an endless, endless variety of formulas that will assure people a great life. And Peter, who I'll remind you, is on his way to martyrdom. He's writing some 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And he knows that Jesus, when he restored him to ministry, predicted that Peter would die by crucifixion. Peter is talking to suffering people as a dying man and he's going to step back from their trials and say, look, God loves you. He has chosen you even though you're scattered and homeless in this world. God is worthy to be praised Because He's given you new life in Christ. He's given you a new inheritance in heaven that you cannot possibly lose. And God Himself is actually protecting you until you get to enjoy it. But for now, if necessary, you're going through all kinds of trouble. And verse 7 tells you why. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, of your trust in God, is what He means. So that the tested genuineness of your faith... More precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, so that your faith, Peter says, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 7 is a mouthful. Did you notice? There's a lot there. You might have got lost in the details and you probably went the wrong way as I did when you read it. And you probably can't believe and it didn't occur to you that the verse actually means what it means. And I say that because once I convinced myself through study of what it actually means, I literally said out loud the word wow three times. Because this is better than anything anybody's probably ever told you. Peter says this, When your trust in God is tested, either through great loss like being displaced physically and spiritually, and feeling like you have no home in the world, or it's just the daily annoyances, the key doesn't work, people are difficult, traffic is awful, it's hard and expensive to live here, That little daily drip, drip, drip of annoyance and difficulty, whether it's crisis or the daily pain of being an adult. Whatever's happening to you, Peter says, it's only occasional, but it's necessary. It will occasionally be needed in your life so that your faith being tested. Which Peter says, your trust in God is more precious than gold. We take gold and we heat it through fire at hellish temperatures and we make that gold even better. It takes about 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit to purify gold. At around 2,000 degrees, gold melts and what is impure in it will float out. And Peter says that may be how it feels to you. You've trusted God. You've put your trust in a God who loves you, who says that you are chosen even though now you're scattered. And I've already told you all that you have waiting for you. But these various trials that that you find yourself in that have brought you such grief, you may feel like that gold being tested by fire And the point of that, verse 7, is that your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, why did I say wow when I understood verse 7? Well, let me just ask you a very simple Bible question. Who deserves praise and glory and honor? God does. But that's not what Peter's saying here. It's gonna, this is so outlandishly good and gracious that you're not going to believe it. Verse 7 is telling you, Christian, when you're going through hard times, in those necessary times, and thank God it's not every day, but in those necessary times when life is painful and the heat feels like it's burning things out of you, that's actually the point. God who knows everything and is in control of everything is allowing you to be for at least a time in the furnace. And He is testing how much you actually trust Him. And it's not the kind of test that you pass or you fail. It's the kind of test that will purify you and make you better if you successfully respond to Him. It's not a piece of paper on a a school desk like an SAT. God forbid, those were terrible days. Where you had had to fill in the bubbles and every bubble made you think that you were ruining your life if it was the wrong bubble. No, this is a personal test. This is a test between persons. This is a God who has already told you He loves you. Who's taking you to glory. Who has given you life through His Son. Who has His inheritance waiting for you and is going to personally guard you until He gets you home. Now He has you in a time of trial. And your faith is actually more precious than gold. Because no matter how much we purify gold and now no matter how good that earthly treasure becomes, it all perishes. It's all temporary. It can all be lost. It can all be destroyed. But not your faith. When you come through the trial successfully, Peter says, your faith, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, when Jesus is unveiled and when Jesus comes back, here's the mind-blowing part. Here's the part that made me say, wow, it took me a day to believe this. The Christian is the one being praised. The Christian is the one receiving glory. And the Christian who has been faithful to God in trial, is the one being honored by God when his son comes back. Wow! After the trial, God will reward you. See, if you build an entire evangelical subculture in your entire life on avoiding pain, you'll avoid all the rewards too. If you numb yourself and take a detour and refuse to follow God in the hard parts where He's chosen you to obey Him that you find difficult, where you find the test painful, it's at that point that you will refuse to be purified, that your faith will not grow any stronger, that your relationship won't go any deeper, and in which when Jesus finally comes back, your Father will have nothing to commend you over because at least in those areas it was there that you chose to disobey Him. The most astonishing thing about the Bible is this. God saves us entirely by His grace. He has chosen us. We are elect, Peter says at the beginning of the letter. We're not earning this. We possibly can't earn it, but now we're His children and Father is guiding us and teaching us. And like every good father, Father will occasionally test us. And when we come through the test trusting and loving our Father more than we did before the tests got started, our Father is not only pleased, He, the God of the universe, this is astounding, the God of the universe actually praises, honors, gives glory to His child because His child is now more like God Himself. This is how Christians grow. It's not an isolated idea in the Bible. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote this. James chapter 1, verse 12. Read this with me. The Bible says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Does God owe you anything? God's passing out crowns. Does that make any sense to you? You're going to show up in heaven and there's going to be an awards banquet for you? Does that make any sense? It doesn't because it's all grace, but He's that good. God is so good that He will reward us for what we should do. But isn't that like every loving parent? Don't you praise your little child when they finally obey you? Don't you clap your hands and celebrate when they do what they should have been doing for the last six months? (laughs) Why? Because your heart overflows with love toward them. And you're not insecure that you will lose any glory, honor, and praise for yourself by lavishing it on your children. God is not diminished by rewarding you God Himself is glorified, honored, and praised all the more when He displays this level of generosity to His kids. Look back with me in 1 Peter chapter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith More precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result. Your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, if I haven't made myself clear, what is is in the crucible is whether you trust God or not. And the present level of obedience you have for God and the present level of satisfaction you find in God is exactly in the measure in which you trust Him. Some of you trust him with your soul, but not with your money. Some of you trust him with your soul and your money, but not with your children. Some of you trust him with everything but your job. It is there that you're probably going to be tested. It is there that father's going to say, Come here, come here, kid, come here. Listen, this is going to hurt. But it's for a purpose. God's not random. God's not cruel. God's not chaotic like we are. He is determined to make you into the image of His Son who saved you. And along the way, when He puts you in the fire and you respond by getting better and stronger and becoming more like Him, He will reward you on earth and He will give you an even greater glory and greater reward in heaven. So much so that James, the brother of Jesus, describes it as a crown. And there are five crowns mentioned in the New Testament that can be given by God to believers. The concept's mind so mind blowing that Bible scholars themselves can't exactly agree on what these crowns are, but the idea is clear. God Himself is so good that He'll reward us for what we should do. And then Peter says in verse 8 regarding Jesus, for whom they're doing all this and who they're waiting for, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Man, I love that verse. Because that's me. That's you, I've never seen Jesus. I've read about Him, I've prayed to Him, I've seen His power, I've seen His goodness, but I've never seen Him, but I haven't seen Him, but I love Him. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You may have noticed this is the second time in this short paragraph that Peter has talked about joy in the middle of trials. What's the second truth you need to remember as you go through the fire? The first is this. God is going to reward you when it's over. So don't try to avoid it. Just try to go through it well. Try to act like a Christian while you're in the fire. Remind yourself of the outcome. Remind yourself of what is coming. Remind yourself of what awaits you if you walk faithfully with Jesus through the path that the Father has directed. And remember number two, that it's exactly that. It's love for Jesus that brought you into this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Amen. If you suffer as a Christian, be glad. I'm going to say that again. The current mood of Christians in America is we're Christians, we shouldn't have to suffer. It's exactly wrong. We're Christians. We've been blessed like no other people have in the world. I can tell you, like few people other have ever have in the world, we have been blessed by unprecedented peace, blessing, prosperity, and opportunity. Now, if it is our time to suffer as Christians, we need to remember that it's love for the Lord whom we cannot see that brought us into this life. We loved Him because He first loved us. And this is a love relationship. And when you're hurting in love, if you really love that person, you don't bail. You remind yourself, as so many of you have, and you don't want to embarrass anybody or make anybody cry, but there's people sitting right in front of me who have taught me what a marriage of more than 50 years and 60 years looks like, including all the way unto death parting them. And it's been so precious and so sweet to me as someone who's, halfway through that journey of marriage to tell myself when I get that old, when my body fails, when her body fails, this is how Christians act. They don't step away. They step closer. Because it's love. It's love for the Jesus that you cannot see. It is love for the Jesus that you do not, that you know but not yet fully, that brought you into this and that will sustain you in this. So if you suffer for him, be glad. Listen to what Jesus said. It's the beatitude nobody likes. It's in the Beatitudes. I've never actually seen it quilted or in a corny Christian painting that you see in the I've seen them all. I've never seen this one. As far as I know, Thomas Kincaid never did this one, okay? If you don't know who that is, don't look it up. (laughs) Read the words of Jesus with me. Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you." You want Jesus to adjust your attitude? Blessed are you. You are happy, literally. Happy are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Notice, falsely on my account. If you're on your own stupid adventure, you don't get any rewards. (laughs) If the critics are right, no reward. You're not following Jesus. If the critics are after you because you're behaving like a fool, no reward because Jesus was never foolish. But blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. When that happens, Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. For your what? Your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you Listen, church, even in suffering. Jesus will make sure your love for Him is not misplaced. Anybody on this earth may break your heart and disappoint you. I will. Early years of my pastorate here, I would tell you, you stick around long enough, I'll disappoint every single one of you. I won't know what to do. I won't show up. I'll get it wrong. I'll do harm without meaning to. I promise never to disappoint you in a sinful, catastrophic kind of way. But I'm a sinful human being. Frail and afraid. And I will disappoint you. Jesus never will. Every bit of love you have for Him will be rewarded. Listen to how Peter explains it at the end of his letter. Read this aloud with me as well. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. It says, And after you have suffered a little while... The God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. God Himself will come to you. The Father who saw you go through the fire because the Father put you in it. He'll restore you. He'll confirm you. He'll strengthen you. He'll establish you after you have suffered a little while. What Peter is trying to remind us of here is this, the love that brought you into the trial can sustain you through it. It is love for Jesus that brought you into suffering. It is love for Jesus that will guard you and protect you and lead you out of it and into glory. And finally, verse 9, Peter says the outcome of all this is that you're obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What does this trust in God mean to you? It means that you are saved. So the third thing to keep in mind, your salvation will someday be complete and better than you can imagine. And Paul would say that the trials looked at from the vantage point of heaven will seem light and momentary. Paul, who's scarred, Paul, who apparently is half-blind. Paul, who is impoverished. Paul, who has been shipwrecked. Paul, who has been beaten and imprisoned and on one occasion left for dead. Paul, who is betrayed, who has no friends in the world, who says in his last letter, I stood alone except Jesus stood with me. At my trial, everyone walked away. Everyone forsook me, but the Lord was with me. Paul says, from the perspective of heaven, your troubles will seem light and momentary because you will then be enjoying the salvation of your soul. And soul doesn't mean the immaterial part of you. Soul is a very special biblical word that means all of you. Everything you are will be saved, and you will have that new life in Christ fully. You will see Jesus as He actually is, the Jesus you didn't see. You will now see with your own eyes. You will enjoy the reward that God prepared for you, and you will celebrate that God Himself protected you until He got you home to heaven. Want to see the whole Bible come together? Here's John, the friend of Peter, giving us an end a look at the end of history Also, we said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. That's your future, Christian. So if you go through the fire, it'll hurt. You don't have to be a masochist. You don't have to say that suffering and pain are good. They're not. What they produce is precious. It refines your faith. More precious than gold. It is found not only to magnify the glory and the goodness and the praiseworthiness of God, but God Himself who deserves all honor and who deserves all praise out of His goodness praises you. He will reward you when the trial is over. In the meantime, you can walk faithfully with your hand on Jesus and His hand holding you fast because love got you into this and love will get you out. And you can rejoice now in the partial salvation that you're suffering through right now, when not all with you is yet made right, and not all of God's creation is restored, and not everything that God made has been redeemed. You're as saved as you're going to be, but your salvation and your glorification is not yet complete. You can rejoice that God himself will someday wipe away your tears and has left a written witness told his apostle John who died for him too, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. When you're suffering, don't duck it. Hold on to Jesus. And for His sake, and for your future, for your present peace and your future joy, you go through it with Him. Let's pray. Christian, can I just give you a moment? We've had an energetic time around God's Word. Could I give you a moment to be real with Jesus about your present sufferings? Ask Him to make them count. Ask Him to give you the faithfulness, the peace, the self-control to get your full reward and your full learning out of what He's guiding you through. Maybe even tell him you're sorry for shying away from his plan and his purpose. It all counts if you bear it like a Christian. It all counts if you look past present suffering to future reward. It all counts if you do it for love. It all counts because someday, however you do, whatever you do, you will be completely saved. So tell him, Christian. Ask him to make you stronger. Ask him to make you better. Ask him to make you trust him more. And if you're not a Christian, can I invite you again to trust Jesus? Two people did last week. Could this be your week when you say, I give up on myself? Jesus, I trust and I love you. Please forgive my sins. I can't save myself. Please save me. Forgive me. Come be the boss of me. Come lead me. I'll follow. Forgive my sins. Make me one of your disciples. If you pray that prayer, would you let us know? Would you take the card that's in your bulletin and leave it with us before you go home? Jesus, teach us to follow and suffer well whenever suffering is necessary. We don't want any part of it. I'm a little anxious to speak of suffering without enduring much of it. Because I know that every truth I teach will be tested someday, somehow in my own life. So give me grace and give us grace, Lord, to act as your children in the trial to emerge with a better, purer, and stronger faith, loving you more, not resenting you for the trial, but loving you more through it. And let us look forward, Lord, to the fullness of our salvation, knowing that not only will will we be saved, we'll be rewarded. Bear the burdens, Lord, of those who are hurting the most. Give them hope, give them comfort, give them joy, and give them that beautiful vision of the future where you, ever faithful, will not only sustain them, but reward them. If anybody here doesn't know you, I pray that this morning, right now, they would turn away from their sin and ask you to be their Savior. In Jesus' name, Crosspoint said, Amen. Amen. We've had a pretty nice day so far. You've been reminded of how much God loves you. You've seen some amazing young people lead you in worship. Believe in these kids. Believe in what God can and will and wants to do in them. A final rant, if I may. <laughs> Not a rant, just a little word of admonition, a perspective I learned through study the last couple of years. Every older generation looks with skepticism and resentment at the younger generation. It's just human nature. The generation that fought World War II has a great nickname, probably the greatest nickname ever. What, what do we call the World War II generation? The greatest generation. Do you know what their parents called them? true not making this up there's a book in print about that generation called the lost generation the author said these young people will never fight for anything because they don't believe in anything that book was written in the 30s a few years later those worthless kids went to war and saved the world so never look with skepticism on the songs the styles the struggles of the Christians coming up behind you. Jesus loves them too. Loves them. I know it's mind blowing. He loves them just as much as he loves you. He has great plans for them. They might be in the fire right now, having their faith tested so that when they come out, God will find them praiseworthy so that they will learn to love Jesus in real trials so that they will learn to look forward to the full salvation of all that they are and everything God made. So, before you go, you see somebody younger than you, encourage them. You see one of the students that was on this stage leading us in worship, say a kind Christian word to them. Tell them that you know that God has good plans for them because Jesus, by His grace, loves every single one of us. God bless you. Love you.